We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Bills make me wanna. Absolutely. And, and this is either really carrying out the fake. Because that's what we call it in the business. Right. That's right. Ride that ball yes. all the way in. Mesh there, point. Kyle Brandt. <laughs> the mesh point, right. Uh, it's either really ca- or really legitimately interested in it because Terry Pagula was with head coach Sean McDermott. I'm told Doug Willie was also in there, even though he wasn't in that picture that the Bills retweeted, to work out Mitchell Trubisky yesterday, or sorry, Sunday at uh, UNC. And, and this is a, a lot of interest to be sending the owner down there. They also talked to Deshaun Kaiser, uh, as Tom Pelissero of USA Today reported. Uh, but this is really interesting now because you've got a team at 10 who could be the first team, really, to be in position to take a quarterback in this draft. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockwell Report podcast. I am your host, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That is my producer with a stupid Kango hat on, Chris Kruger. And that was Mike Garofolo, Garofalo of NFL Network, who I can only assume is Janine Garofalo's uglier and less talented brother, talking about quarterbacks and the Buffalo Bills. Mitchell I, Trubisky. Guys, quarterback, there's been a lot of talk about it. You know, As you heard from Mike Garofalo, it's one thing to talk about quarterbacks. It's another thing to have your owner going out to watch them work out. I think that's what's lending a lot of credibility to this quarterback steam that's picking up as we, you know, we're less than just about a week away from the NFL draft. It's coming up, and quarterback seems to be the topic on everyone's tongue. It's the most important position. Which is why tonight, the theme of tonight's podcast is going to be us discussing and breaking down pre draft the quarterback position as it stands. Now, there's been a lot of other things going on. I, I mean, it's funny. We record this podcast on a bi-weekly basis during the offseason because there usually isn't that much going on around the team, at least until the draft happens. And yet, like clockwork, even though there aren't any games, it seems like every week when we go to record, there's always something. Something happens that just makes me want to drink an extra beer or three, and today is no exception. And with that being said, we're going to jump right into this week's Buffalo Bills news update. 
Eversley and New England. They're getting in bed together. Woo! This afternoon, news broke that the Patriots have signed Bill's restricted free agent, Mike Gillisley, to a two-year, $6.4 million deal. Obviously front-loaded to put most of the guaranteed money and cap it into the 2017 portion of the deal. <laughs> Let me tell you, the sun may be shining here in Buffalo today. You know, it's, it's unseasonably warm. It's about 70 degrees, the sun's out, and yet it is absolutely raining hot takes on social media right now. So you guys might be wondering, where do I stand on all of this? Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. Everyone needs to calm their asses down right now. Let's all take a collective deep breath together. Goose Fraba. Did that feel good? Didn't it feel good to just let that out? Now give me some beer. Ah, as I sip my beer. Walk with me through this, if you will, for a second. Mike Gillisley, while being productive in a backup role to the, you know, the last two seasons you know, for the Buffalo Bills, it, he was productive when called upon, and according to the voodoo that goes into producing these DVOA stats that exist out there online, he was averaging, what, five, almost six, six yards a carry? Six yards a carry. And yet, even with all that production, he wasn't utilized in what was one of the run-heaviest offenses in the NFL. So, yes, in spots, he produced well. But if you were a coach of a team that was ground and pound, run first, why didn't Gillesley get more carries? I don't know. I don't know X's and O's. I mean, I know there's... You I, do. I'm not... Sec- secondly... Mike Gillisley plays a position that has been monstrously devalued over the last decade. I mean, multiple contributors have been found in the fourth round or later over the course of the last few drafts. I mean, think just as recently as Carlos Williams and Jay Ajay. Howard from Chicago. Yep. Uh, Jordan Howard. There's another one. Great running backs are being found later and later in each one of these drafts. Okay. And this draft is deep at the running back position. You know, there's obviously top end talent. But there's also some contributors that are going to be found in these later rounds of the draft, which helps because the Bills will be getting back in exchange for Mike Gillisley if he walks a fifth round draft pick. Now, no team in their right mind would have given up a second round draft pick, especially in this draft where talent is so deep for a player of Gillisley's Gillisley's talent level. But I, I... you're, you're looking at where, here's a draft that's deep. We don't have as many picks as some of these other teams out there. Letting him walk is an opportunity for us to basically take what was a street-free agent who we paid minimum salary to. He was finally due a deal, and instead of having to pay him, we get to save almost $2 million in cap space, and we get a draft pick for free in a deep draft. I'll take that. Exactly. Who wouldn't? I, I'm not thrilled at the prospect of possibly losing a someone who's a, a guy who's not really a known commodity, but people seem to lean in the direction that he's a good player. I'm not about. I don't like the idea, but I'm not going to jump off the deep end about it. I'm just not going to. No. Can we? Uh, can we have a moment for Mike Gillisley as he's probably going to leave? That's hindsight. Man. 
Unfortunately for the Raiders, it'll be Matt McGloin as their quarterback. That one bounces and no one on the Bills goes to get it. Now Gillisley tracks it down in the end zone. That's a touchdown. What are the Bills doing? That play right there, 65-yard on, uh, basically what, what became a 65-yard onside kick for a touchdown for the Jets, when Mike Gillisley didn't know that you're supposed to get the ball on a kickoff. It's a live ball off the tee, Mike. Jesus Christ. Oh, Chris, why did why'd you got to ambush me with that? Now I'm opening another beer. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> why not? That's his, that's his claim to fame as a bill. 65 yards onside kick. <sighs> I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, I don't. I don't hate. I, I don't like the idea of losing a player, especially another one to the Patriots. I feel like if it was any team other than the Patriots, the the backlash. If it was the Cincinnati Bengals pulling this, people wouldn't be as upset. I think it's the fact that the Patriots and fans feel like they're trolling us, like they have, which good for them. They're what they're doing is they're they're loading up year after year to try to keep this dynasty alive. It will end. I guarantee you that before I die, this dynasty will end. And when it does, I'll be there to see it. But for right now, they're doing everything they can to restock year after year after year for as long as Brady can still play quarterback at a high level. Because every year that he does that, they're in the running for a championship. Now, Shady and Jonathan Williams are the only ones on the roster, right, at running back? No, no. we've got uh, Banyard. We've got, we've got some other guys that we brought in off the street who look like camp bodies. But at the same time, let's find out who they are. I mean, can we all put, can, can we all agree on one thing? During the drought era for the Buffalo Bills, okay, people are all up in arms about losing a street free agent running back for a fifth round pick. You know, Mike Gillisley, oh, he could have been the running back of the future. He's tw- he's already twenty seven years old. If he was going to be something bigger, I think he would have been that already. Second of all, you look at the the, the running backs, the high end running backs that we've had. Having a Lashawn McCoy here, that's nice. It is. We've had a C.J. Spiller. We've had a Willis a, a Mar- a Marshawn Lynch. Lynch. A Willis McGahey. The best running back out of the entire drought period was Fred Jackson, who wasn't even drafted. Oh! I feel like my teeth are going to turn around and eat my brain if I hear people spend any more time ranting and raving about losing Mike Gillisley. We can almost assume they're going to use one of the a pick in the draft on a running back, right? <sighs> Am I right? I, I'm going to calm down here. I'm going to sip my beer. Sip your beer. And what I'm going to say is that for everyone out there who's just blowing their stacks over this and you know on social media ranting to anybody who will listen and slinging mud at Doug Whaley over this, I just think you all need to sit down, goose fraba, and have a beer with me, all right? Cheers. Cheers. Next up on the docket, the Bills are being bearish on Sammy Watkins. The report came out that the Bills are hesitating to exercise the fifth-year option for Sammy Watkins. And much like Mike, Mike Gillisley news, I could almost hear people's heads exploding. I feel like a lot of this has to do with his injury. And then, I mean, look at what his injury history is and what his history since he was drafted has been. Well, he's only been injured in the pros. Yeah, he's only been injured in the pros, but... Let's remind everybody, Doug Marone played him in a fifth preseason game against Detroit. But I will say that his injury history is also something you can't ignore. No. Okay. Here is why I think that this is happening. This is my take. Take it for what it's worth. 
Doug Whaley stands to gain absolutely nothing by allowing Sammy Watkins to, to, to walk away from this football team and get nothing in exchange for him. If anything, watching that happen would just be a further indication that Doug Whaley made a mistake in drafting him in the first place. So the fact that he's hesitating on exercising this has got to revolve around injuries. It has to, both his current injury and his history. So I guess the question I'm going to level to Bills fans out there right now who are listening to this podcast, tell me which you would be angrier about. Sammy Watkins doesn't get his option exercised. He had, he puts he's healthy for all of 2017. He's wildly productive. And the Bills have to he, – he's going into what is essentially a, f- a free agent season. You know, he's, he's in a contract year. And then the Bills have to franchise tag him and ultimately spend a little bit more money to retain his services going forward. Or us exercising his option now, and he's injured again, has another you know productive season but an injury-plagued one where he can't really produce in the way that you need him to. He's injured going into next season much the way he is now, in which that fifth-year option would become fully guaranteed, and he would be guaranteed millions of dollars for a season that he may not play all of. I, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to come out and say it. Now that you've had a chance to think about it, there is no good answer to, those, to that question. There isn't. Here's a, here, here's a final question, Chris, before you say anything. Let me leave you with this. Ask yourselves, what would the Patriots do? The Patriots have been one of the best front offices in football for years. They would be as shrewd as humanly possible so as to protect themselves against taking on a player who may never generate the production that equals their cap hit. I mean, ultimately, I I think this is a non-story, and I do expect them at some point. I think that Watkins is a part of their long-term plan. But I can also see why they're exercising caution. What do you think? I mean, I don't really give a shit because wide receivers are a dime a dozen. Best receiver in the league is Antonio Brown. He's like a fifth, sixth-round pick. Mm-hmm. Who's Brady work with? No first-rounders. You know, people like to compare Odell Beckham and Sammy. Yeah, oh, all- we could have got, we could have got Odell Beckham. He wouldn't have the same fucking production. Well, one of the things I don't I care hear a lot, who our receivers are. <clears throat> well, that's the thing, though. One of the things I hear a lot is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who your wide receivers are when you don't know who's throwing to them. Case in point, look at the Houston Texans. The Houston Texans have Will Fuller, who was for a rookie. He was pretty productive out of the gate. You know, he had some he had some great games for them. And I think as a first round draft pick rookie coming into the league and starting as a number two receiver, he did well. He's paired up with DeAndre Hopkins, who is a very talented wide receiver. And had a horrible year. And had a terrible year. And both of them did. Ultimately, when you look at the grand scheme of things, their offense wasn't nearly as productive as it needed to be. Why? Because they had subpar quarterback play. Meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers goes into a playoff game last year against Arizona with two wide receivers off the practice squad. One of them has 60 and a touch. The other one has 141 yards receiving. It's all about who's throwing the ball. If, if you don't know who's throwing it, you know, look at this, the Sammy Watkins pick. You can even argue that that pick was putting the cart before the horse because you were drafting a high-end wide receiver. You know, it, that would be like going out and buying a Ferrari for your 11-year-old. You're putting <laughs> the cart before the horse. If, if you don't have someone who knows how to operate it, it doesn't do you any good. 
And just think of, of who's Sam, who's thrown the ball to Sammy. EJ, Kyle Orton. I mean, let's think about the best wide receiver in recent NFL history. Okay? Mm-hmm. Megatron. Kel- Megatron, Kelvin Johnson. How many, how many playoff games did he play in? Maybe one, two. He played with one with Schwartz, I believe. How many Super Bowls did he go to? None. <laughs> so his talent level is otherworldly, and yet he himself, regardless bi- of how many disgusting statistics he can put up, cannot win you a football game alone. No, if you're going to build a football team, you build from the interior out. So for all of you out there who are losing your minds about Sammy Watkins, you're well within your right to do so. I'm just telling you again, goose fraba. Grab a beer, Chris. I have a beer. Cheers. It's delicious. Ah, it's refreshing. All right. So now I'm calm down. I came into this with a little bit of fire, a little bit of piss and vinegar. So really, when, it, when you get down to brass tacks, your team is only as good and will only go as far as the guy slinging the rock for you. Now, the way the Bills have kind of handled this offseason, the way they've modified Tyrod Taylor's contract, I think that in and of itself tells you that they don't think, I mean, they may they may be hoping he's the guy. I, I think that the fact that they restructured his deal in the first place tells you that they may not be sold on the idea of him being the guy. I think that if Sean McDermott came in, took over this team and said, we are in love with Tyrod Taylor. We, we are very confident that he has what it takes to be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Then there's no reason to rework the deal. There just isn't. The fact that they did shows that whether it's the GM, whether it's the coach, there just isn't a feeling in that building that he is the guy to get them to a championship. And, like I said, your team is only as good as the guy slinging the rock for you. Which is why I think a lot of this quarterback you know, draft talk is starting to ramp up in relation to the Buffalo Bills. So, in the, in the mindset of keeping this podcast fresh and always bringing you guys new stuff, we put together a new segment. We're going to roll it out a couple times a season. And the very, you know, because all this comes down to opinions. And sometimes differing opinions. People butting heads. It almost could be like I'm trying to air my case and have you guys hear it. So with that in mind, we are going to roll out the first installment of what we refer to as Rockpile Report Court. In the NFL draft, players are scrutinized by two separate yet equally important podcasters. Drew Gear, a 31-year-old alcoholic with a disdain for wicker. Kyle Fahey, a 15-year-old podcaster who attends a high school that still has timeouts. These are their arguments. Welcome to the Rockpile Report Court. Our first subject, Patrick Mahomes, quarterback, Texas Tech. We have Drew Gear, who is against Mahomes, and Kyle Fahey of the Jet Take Podcast, who is for Patrick Mahomes as a pro prospect. Kyle Fahey, please state your opening argument. Patrick Mahomes is one of the most talented quarterbacks of this generation to say it's really only the mental makeup i see the looks already it's really only the mental makeup of the nfl offense that he has to get under wraps comparisons to christian hackenberg uh when it comes to that uh patrick mahomes arm strength is comparable to only brett Favre in a sense can't think of anybody else his athleticism is off the charts uh He's just really physically a complete package, and if you have yourself a good QB coach and a good offensive-minded 
guy in the locker room, possibly even a veteran, if you want him to sit for if you want him to sit for a year, he can definitely become your franchise quarterback. True gear, your opening argument. Ladies and gentlemen of the court, let me ask you a question first and foremost. What quarterbacks in the last decade have come from Texas Tech? That's right. I, I don't hear any answers. The, well, the, the, well, well, hang, hang on. I'll tell you. In the last, we'll start at two thousand. I will name you the last two quarterbacks who entered the NFL draft and were selected to NFL rosters: Cliff Kingsbury and B.J. Simmons. Does anyone know who they are? No, of course not, because they're nobodies. I believe but, Klingsberg is a coach mm-hmm. at some level. He's a coach. Okay. We have a coach, and we have a nobody. Someone lost to the annals of NFL history. Now, I look at the quarterbacks who come from this air raid-style offense, and I say to you, who? give me your best. Give me your brightest. Give me the shining stars that have come to the NFL from this type of an offensive scheme and tell me what they've accomplished. What I'm left with are the names Sam Bradford, Robert Griffin III. The prosecution rests. Fahey, your rebuttal. Sam Bradford, number one overall pick, average quarterback. Some might argue, you know, better than what our respected teams have. Um, Patrick Mahomes has significantly better talent levels than every quarterback you just named. And I think comparing him to past people who are not even up to his standards is unfair. Fahey, what is... Patrick Mahomes' best attribute? It's got to be his deep ability. Um, Something that I don't want to say lacks in the NFL today, but you look at the successful quarterbacks of today. uh, First comes to mind Aaron Rodgers. I mean, you think of Aaron Rodgers, you're thinking of a Hail Mary and a winner. This also comes to mind with Patrick Mahomes. Didn't he throw 80 yards as pro day? He threw 80 yards at his pro day, and unofficially, according to his agent, Lee Steinberg, who is also the guy from, uh, God, the movie forgets my name right now, but uh, he could throw up to 87, unofficially. Okay, okay Fahey, uh, Jamarcus Russell threw 60 yards from his knees. Where is he today in the NFL? Um, probably trying to make a comeback in the CFL. Deer, do you have a rebuttal? My rebuttals are many, sir. Now, let me explain to you of the court, here here in front of me, as I sip my beer and then open another one. Let's take a look at Patrick Mahomes' 2016 season. Now, what what, what I see here is that in no game this year did he fail to throw a touchdown. You are correct. His production is through the roof. I see here, just at first glance, multiple 500-yard games. A number of games where he threw for 300, 400 yards. That, that, that's a, that, that is a lot, to, especially coming from a team that does not have an elite wide receiver or isn't known for its running game, doesn't have a, number, a running back who's slated to be drafted in this NFL draft. But when I look at this, look at his performances... And I see that he threw five touchdowns and 540 yards against teams such as Arizona State. Mm -hmm. 
who who is Arizona State? I'm looking through all of the teams that he played this season, where he racked up all of these yards, and what I'm seeing is a collection of a collection of teams that really aren't that good. I see that against West Virginia, he was held. This, their offense was held to 17 points. He threw for 305 yards and one touchdown in that game. And most of those statistics, looking at the box score here in front of me, came in garbage time. You know who else put up games like that in the NFL this season? Blake Bortles. Would anyone out there suggest that Blake Bortles is a good quarterback? Now, my problems, my problems with Patrick Mahomes come down to this. He is a gunslinger. You are correct. You compared him to Brett Favre yourself, Kyle. You stated that he has an arm that's comparable to Brett Favre, which is huge. But he's reckless with the football. He's got mechanical issues, which is a red flag for any quarterback going in the NFL draft. One of his new one of the things that you notice when you look at his tape is that he throws way too many balls back across his body to the other side of the field after drifting out of the pocket to the sideline. That will not that will get you by in these spread option concepts in the college football game where your cornerbacks, some of those guys are walk-ons. That will not work in the NFL. That playground style of ball just doesn't fly here. And that's why not only have most of the quarterbacks who come from systems like this failed in the NFL, but so will Patrick Mahomes. I vaguely recall a playoff game. Minnesota, New Orleans, Brett Favre. Throws across his body, intercepted, game over. <laughs> to to rebuttal that, Drew Brees has one of the lingiest arms in the NFL. I mean, he plays in a dome, and he still probably can't get it over 65. Plus the pretty bad shoulder injury, which stopped him from going to the Dolphins. I mean, I wouldn't use Drew Brees as a good comparison for arm strength and throwing across the body. Because you've seen Patrick Mahomes do it, like you said, on tape. He has the capabilities to do it. He has the capabilities to do it on a dime. And if we're comparing mechanics in this draft class, compared to a guy like Deshaun Watson, he's not that bad. He's okay, definitely... oh, well. okay, Drew, rebuttal. Oh, thank you for opening the door, Mr. Fahey. So, <laughs> Kyle, you'd like to talk about mechanics. You'd like to talk about – here's what I see. You're comparing Deshaun Watson to Patrick Mahomes. I have the same problem with Deshaun Watson that I have with Mahomes in the sense that They've taken very few snaps under center. But Watson has taken more than Mahomes, which in and of itself is an indictment to the fact that I don't know that he can do it. You're talking about a guy who already has mechanical issues. Now you're going to ask him to do something that he is almost completely foreign to him over the last couple years of his career, to stand under center drop back and see an entire football field and still go through your reads while taking a three-step, a five-step, a seven-step drop. Understanding a pocket and how to step up into it after you've taken your snap from under center. These are all concepts that will not be... They're all foreign concepts to this kid at this point. That's not to say that he can't grasp them. But you're banking on something that he hasn't done. You're expecting him to show you something new at a level against stiffer competition than he's ever faced before in his entire career. I feel like it's a mistake to think that his current production can continue in a league where he's going, where he's undertaking physical motions that he's really hasn't done before in his career. 
You're asking him to make reads that he hasn't had to make in his career. And, yes, he has the arm talent, but you're going to be asking him to use his brain to, to make decisions and read protections that he hasn't had to do before. You're, if you draft him anywhere in the top three rounds of the NFL draft, you are banking on his upside and praying that everything else falls into, falls into step. And that's why I don't view him as a draftable prospect Fahey, on the Buffalo Bills. Fahey, earlier in your argument, you stated the needing of a great QB coach and a great OC. Where is Patrick Mahomes' best fit? If you gave me Patrick Mahomes with Sean Payton being retained in New Orleans for the foreseeable future, I think Patrick Mahomes could very easily replace Drew Brees when his time comes and become a pro bowler in the NFL. A pro bowler! And where... Your Honor, I object. I I object, Your Honor. Hold on. Your objection is dismayed. Where would you place... Mahomes and Buffalo, if you were to rank, you know, all the NFL teams and Mahomes being the best fit, the Bills would rank where? You've already stated New Orleans as being the best fit, but what about for Buffalo? Um, Probably towards the middle of the pack, maybe a little behind it. I think a guy like LaShawn McCoy could definitely help him along. It's always great to have a good running back with a young quarterback. And, you know, when healthy, your weapons aren't terrible. So I think you guys do have stuff to work with. Not sure how I feel about your new head coach developing a quarterback uh, with his defensive background and not too confident in your offensive coordinator, according to Gary Smith of AFC East Bros. Uh, so if I were the Bills, um, not that you guys really have anything special besides Tyrod, um, but... I probably would not take a flyer on Patrick Mahomes. Drew Gear, state your final argument. My closing statement is this. When I look at a guy like Patrick Mahomes, I see a guy. I'm not going to try to take anything away from him here. I know I've, I've, I've talked a lot of smack. What I see is a player who has a very strong arm. I mean, he's probably got one of the strongest arms in this entire draft. I will give him that. And I'll say that he has put up some eye-popping statistics working with a cast of you know, nobodies, nobodies uh, receivers and running backs who really aren't making a name for themselves. But when I look at just everything, his entire body of work, I, I can't help it, but I, I can't help but think to myself, He reminds me of a player. He reminds me of another player who came from an offense kind of similar that just decided to forego the NFL draft. And you can crucify me for this. I'm sure some of you out there will. But does anyone remember the name Nick Florence from Baylor? Doesn't ring a bell. Nope. No. Sure it doesn't. Here's what I see. I see a guy who has a good arm, who plays in an offense that puts up a lot of statistics, who on paper you'd think, okay, maybe that kid has a shot at being something in the NFL. If he can learn to play under center, if he can learn to read a middle linebacker and scan a defense and adjust his packages for pressure, if he can learn to look off safeties because he's used to these one-read off offensive uh, concepts, if, if he can learn to take checkdowns, 
instead of always hunting for a big play because that big play disappears in the NFL. The defenses are too fast. Those windows get tighter. Margins for error get smaller. Ultimately, I think that Patrick Mahomes is one of these guys who he is a very good athlete. He has a great arm. Mentally and just with his repetition, with muscle memory, everything it's going to take to play quarterback at the NFL level, I do not see him as a viable starter anytime soon for any NFL franchise. And I think that whoever takes him better be doing so with a four- or five-year plan, which unfortunately we as the Buffalo Bills just do not have. No, no, you guys... You guys can't miss the playoffs for like 21 years. But I, don't, I, I just don't want him on my roster, period. I see him with his ceiling. I project that his ceiling is a bad version of Jay Cutler. Kyle Fahey, closing argument. I've addressed that. Patrick Mahomes definitely needs to work on his mechanics, the mental aspect of the game. His physical attributes are undeniable. You look at what RG3 did in his rookie year when he was able to stay healthy coming from spread offense. I think Patrick Mahomes can do better than that because I think he's probably just a better player than RG3. He doesn't have durability questions. In fact, he's one of the toughest players in college football. The dude played with almost every injury you can think of in exception to an ACL. He's a pure gamer. You give him a good coach and you have a good franchise that's willing to wait maybe one or two years I think Patrick Mahomes can be your guy. I remember two people back in the early 90s. Andre Ware, Houston, spread offense. And I remember the one before him, I want to say Dave Klingler, same thing, spread offense, top picks in the NFL, both failures like Kyle Fahey. Argument goes to Drew. Kyle Fahey, where can we find you on social media? All right, you, you can find my podcast at The Jet Take. Obviously, just a bunch of jet talk. You guys probably aren't interested in that. You can find me personally at Kyle Fahey NFL, and you can find all my terrible draft takes as decided by Chris at Official Draft Them on Twitter. All right, thanks, Kyle. Oh, suck it, Fahey. Bang. Although we all know Chris doesn't know anything, and his opinion means very, very little in the grand scheme of things. My opinion (laughs) means so much. (laughs) Well, so this week, I decided for our poll of the week, I would reach out to you guys, the fans, and find out what you guys thought the Bills should do and what you guys thought about the current crop of quarterbacks. The results were kind of interesting for this week's poll of the week. Just one poll. Those things aren't scientific. I took to Twitter, Reddit, and Facebook with our poll, which is, if the Bills had to draft a quarterback early in this year's draft, who would you want it to be? And I gave everybody five options. Milton Trubisky, Deshaun Watson. D-E-S-E-A-N, Deshaun. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes, Nathan Peterman, or Deshaun Kaiser. Sure it's not Jay Peterman? <laughs> no, not from Seinfeld. <laughs> Across four different Facebook groups and Twitter, we collected 282 votes. Here's where I was surprised. Out of all those votes, 30, 38.7% of everyone who voted voted for Deshaun Watson. But Mitchell Trubisky, you know, I guess this is what surprised me. Mitchell Trubisky and Patrick Mahomes were almost tied. Trubisky got 27%, and Mahomes finished with 26.6% of the popular vote. 
I guess in my mind, I don't understand how, you know, I guess there's a lot of fans who really see a lot of upside in Mahomes because I never would have thought before asking you guys that people would bank on his upside that way. I mean, Trubisky's being touted as the, the safest pick in the draft, right? So it's surprising to me that not only did he not take the first overall, first overall spot among people we pulled, but he also almost didn't beat out Patrick Mahomes. He, he was almost third. I, I mean, what is it that people see in these prospects that or see in, you know, Patrick Mahomes that these other prospects don't have? Well, folks, that's why we're all here tonight. I mean, we're all here to talk about quarterbacks. I and mean, that's the point of this show. I mean, I love draft preparation. It's interesting, especially when it helps you identify you know, those mid to late round players and prospects that you realize after watching a lot of them that they can be productive at the NFL level if they're just given the right scheme or opportunity. But regardless of what I think I know and regardless of all the years I've spent re-watching game tape and highlight film and reading scouting reports and what I know about every other position in football, I am the guy who rapidly, rapidly advocated for the Bills to draft either Landry Jones or Ryan Mallett to be the savior of our franchise. Everybody in Bills backers of Atlanta was high on Mallett when he came out. <laughs> Why? I mean, I, 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 can't, I get it. He was a tall quarterback with what looked like a strong, accurate arm. He was great with play action. That was one of the things that sold me on him because I said, hey, the way we look to run the football with our stable of running backs, he could do a lot of damage especially if he got with the right coach and the right coordinator and in the right system. He could be a great quarterback for us. And obviously, I was beside myself when the Patriots drafted him. Looking back years later, that was obviously stupid. That was, that, that was very dumb of me to think that. I mean, that, that pretty much sums up my knack for identifying good quarterback play. So I've all but given up on trying to scout the position altogether. Luckily, our guest tonight is going to be able to walk us through these things and really help us get down into what what we have in this year's quarterback class, since it seems to be the hot topic of conversation. Here we have with us Mark Schofield. Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Drew. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So, Mark, you've had, I don't know, from what I've read about you and from what I've heard you talk about on other podcasts, you've had kind of an interesting uh way here as far as how you found your way into sports blogging and podcasting and all this stuff. So first off, right now you write for Inside the Pylon, correct? That's right. I, I write most of my work at Inside the Pylon. I do some stuff for the Bleach Report, NFL 1000 Project. But yeah, the bulk of my stuff's over at ITP. Okay, perfect. And for Inside the Pylon, you do a lot of quarterback-centric stuff, correct? I do. Um, that was the position I played growing up, started when I was nine years old, all the way through college um, with one year as a wide receiver in college mixed in there. But so that's the position I kind of feel like I know what I'm talking about the most. I mean, you could ask me about like defensive linemen and linebackers and what they're supposed to do. And I'll just kind of make it up and try to sound good. <laughs> but at least with QBs, like I kind of have some basis of what I'm talking about. So that's why I stick to that. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's perfect. Now, your career path that kind of led you to this. Now, I, I saw nah. something about how you were formerly an attorney. I was. I was an attorney, and what led me to this is that I was a very bad one. <laughs> and I make no qualms about that. I was not a good lawyer. I practiced for 10 years, but just really wasn't good at it. I kept burnt out doing it, was sick of it, um, and just needed a change. And so what I decided to do was you know, leave the practice of law, and right around the time I was going to do that, 
um, some people that I knew, like Chuck Zotta, Dave Archibald, um, James Ostrangio, Phil Kibbe, some other people that I knew from a Red Sox message board had the idea that, look, we debate about football all the time. We're always diagramming plays and talking about stuff. So why don't we try to start a football website? And I thought it was a great idea. And I figured it would be something to do before I figured out what I really wanted to do with my life other than practice law. And three years later, Harry, I'm talking to you guys. <laughs> well, hey, we're glad to have you. I'm glad to be here, man. Now, I, now I got to say this. You make mention of the Red Sox fan, fan boards. I can tell you got some of that Boston accent. Oh, yes, I do. So it's not a, it's not a hard connection to make. You are a Pats fan, sir, aren't you? I am a guilty as charged, my friend. I am a Pats fan. And, and, you know, it's 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 something that I don't, like, broadcast a lot because it's easy to sort of, you know, let's be honest. Pats fans, we do get, with some, you know, reason, a little bit of a bad reputation. And so I kind of keep it quiet, try to keep it on the down low a little bit. But, yes, I am a Patriots fan. The Boston accent, I have never outgrown it. As a matter of fact, I've kind of just decided I'm just going to roll with it and make it part of my brand. So, yes, I am guilty. I showed you guys earlier the Patriots helmet I have sitting right next to me. So, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so, well, no, because and I'm glad we can establish that because, you know what, it, it helps kind of say that, listen, you're not shaded – when I ask you questions, you're not being a homer for the Buffalo Bills. You're just giving yeah. your true opinion because you have no skin in the game when it comes to us asking you what you think about quarterback prospects. No, that is exactly a good point. You're right. I got to say, like, as a former lawyer, you're doing a great job here of sort of like establishing my credentials to sort of offer testimony <laughs> here. I really like what you do. So if you want to switch careers, man, there you go. Well, I'll give you a I appreciate right that. Now. now, there's a couple questions we ask everybody who comes on our show for the first time. What is your what is your best memory of being an NFL football fan for your team? So, what's your favorite Patriots memory? I'm sure you have a ton favorite of great Patriots ones to pick memory. from. I mean, there are a lot to pick from. I mean, I I have a big book here of awesome Patriots memories. I well, mean, isn't that nice? Isn't no, that nice? Just... <laughs> so, then um, I got, so if you had to pick a moment, one. I mean, one moment, it, it'd be easy to just say, "Look, that last Super Bowl." I mean, coming down, coming back from 28-3, being down. I mean, it's hard to top that. But, you know, I will always go back to the snow game and the tuck rule. And I was actually in law school at that time. You know, it was a Saturday night game. I'm hanging out with some friends with the girl that I was in at the time who's now sitting upstairs. Um, We've been married for, you know, a while now. Um, That whole, like, moment that night was just like kind of a surreal experience because, you know, they were playing with house money that season. You know, Mm -hmm. Bledsoe goes down. You get Tom Brady stepping in. Mm -hmm. Didn't really expect him to get to the playoffs. They did. They get a bye. They get a home game on Saturday night. (laughs) Everything from that was house money as far as I was concerned. And so to see them win the way they did, you know, we had no idea what they were going to become. But that was just a magical night. And it turns out that it's kind of started this little dynasty and this run that they've been on. But even if they had just you know, getting their teeth kicked in by the Steelers the next week. That night was still fun. And so I guess that brings me to my next question, and one that I'm sure all of our Bills fan listeners are kind of lick, you know, licking their chops for. What is your least favorite memory being a Pats fan? You guys running Jacoby Brissett out the building this season. <laughs> now, I mean, it's tough to be worse than Tyree. I mean, <laughs> you know, to, to be that close to a 19-0 season and then just, you know, See, they had Eli in their hands. He gets free. Tyree doesn't make another catch in the NFL, but it doesn't matter because it will be <laughs> known for that for the rest he of his life. He made the one that mattered. 
Yeah, made the one that mattered. I mean, that, that will always sting. So that's the worst. And then I guess you guys running Jacoby out the building will be second worst. How about that? I, I, I'll tell you this. That game, I made a bet with all of my friends. I'm, I'm, I'm the only – I don't want to say I'm the only real Bills fan who was there that night because they, they, they were casual Bills fans. But I hated the Patriots so much I couldn't root for them. So I was the right. only one in the room who was like, okay, I don't want to see a perfect season. I do right. not want to see history get made. So then we start making wild bets because the beers are flowing. And I tell my friends because they were all in a band together at the time. And I remember telling them, here's the deal. There's five of you. There's one of me. I will show up to your group's next show in downtown Buffalo. I will show up in full drag. I will wow. show up with makeup. I'll find a wig. I'll wear it. I'll wear uh, pantyhose the whole nine if the Patriots win this Super Bowl. But if the Giants win, your band has to play their next show in drag. And when David Tyree caught that ball, I broke my friend's coffee table because I jumped on it. Wow. I jumped up to stand on the coffee table and just demolished it. It was one of the highlights of my entire life. That, that I, game. I, that I, makes I, sense. That <laughs> makes sense. I mean, for me, though, like the guy I was one of the lawyers I was working for at the time was a huge Giants fan. And so I showed up to work feeling like garbage the next morning, hot over, probably, you know, just miserable and hating life to see just like giant <clears throat> paraphernalia just thrown about my office. He had gotten in early. <laughs> he was probably still, you know, half in the bag, but he had gotten in early through all the giant stuff he had in his car and just dumped it all in my office. So that's what I had to come into the next day. It was that's awful. Awesome. Awful. Yeah. So now on game day, so you're a blogger, you're a writer. So that gives you a little bit more freedom than some of the people we've had on, because I know some of the guys, you know, Nate Geary from WGR, um, uh, Rob Quinn from USA Today. Yeah. These guys, I mean, Sunday, that's their Monday. That's the day they have to go to work and they have to hit work hard. Right. As a blogger, I feel like maybe you get a little bit more leeway than they do. Yeah. So I guess yeah. my question for you is this. What is your average game day routine like and what is your favorite beer? <sighs> favorite game day beer or favorite gear? Period. Favorite game day beer. Game day beer. I usually go Guinness. It's just kind of what I've always kind of been mm -hmm. able to do because one of those things that, you know, I could have a bunch of those like I did on Super Bowl night and just feel fine the next day. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just gotten into that routine. As far as like in-game, I'm a pacer. Like ah. the TV is in the front right corner of our um, living room mm -hmm. and there's kind of like a wine rack that's behind all the couches and all the seating area. So like, for example, this Super Bowl – um, my wife's on the couch. My parents, who are living in this area, but obviously from Boston as well, they were over watching the game. They're seated in each of the two chairs. And I'm standing behind everybody. And basically before each play, I will walk from the wine cabinet to the outside <laughs> dining room that's in, in three other rooms away and then back for the snap. Like that's what happens. That's what when the game gets you're stressful. Nervous. But it's, you're, yeah, you're a nervous I am a guy. nervous like pacer. That's what I do. I'm basically walking laps. And – you know, I'll mention the Red Sox, just that 2004 series against the Yankees when they came back from being down 3-1. I had a routine similar to that where before every key folk pitch in the like, eighth or ninth inning of the game six, I would have to do a similar routine but like tap every either wine rack, um, bookcase, dining table. 
Man, that's that's tough. I mean, it was. That's what I do. I'm like a nervous pacer type. Oh, I'm the same. Well, I'm the same way. Except mine is more. It's more frenetic than that. There's a lot more chairs get thrown around my. See, yeah. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. So there's a lot of chair throwing that goes on. So there's a lot. No, of- I hear you. When um when Brady threw that pick in 05 that almost got run back for a touchdown. Well, that did the Champ Bailey pick. Yep. I had an old flip phone that. I shattered against the wall when that happened. I mean, I just fired it as hard as I could, broke the antenna off. That was the same playoff game that Todd Sauerbrunn forced a a fumble on the punt return. I've never seen anything like that. A punter just square up like a linebacker and just take down a returner and force a fumble. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, you sound, we, it sounds like we've got some things in common here. I, I like, I like where your head's at. I like, we're off to a good start, man. So we're going to dig right into the meat and potatoes of this thing. Now, everyone here has kind of gotten a feel for how I feel about Patrick Mahomes. And Chris seems to agree with me that I don't think much of him. I think he is nothing but a typical system quarterback. Kind of in the mold. And I also brought up RG3-like comparisons. He's a 2017 version of Andre Ware and uh, Dave Klingler. I, I mean, I basically, when I look at what Patrick Mahomes has done, I, I, I mean, it's not that I don't, I, it's not that I see anything terrible. I don't want to say that I don't see anything terrible about his game. I think that, yes, the tools are there. I just wonder, because he comes from this system of offense that you cannot replicate at the NFL level, there's a reason none of these guys pan out once they hit that second, you know, once they get to the next level and hit the NFL, they just, they become flashing the pan. And I just feel like he's another guy. I mean, what's, what is your professional take on Patrick Mahomes? Well, look, guys, this has been fun. I'll talk to you guys later. It's been a great time. <laughs> no, I, I, I believe me. I get the criticisms with Mahomes. I get, you know, the air raid system. And it hasn't really have a long track record of producing NFL caliber quarterbacks. I get the fact that he's got some mechanical issues, some inconsistencies there in his technique and his footwork and his release and things like that, that do need to get ironed out. But I think starting with the offense, it's true that he comes from an air raid system. But I think when you dive deeper into what Cliff Clinsbury sort of put on his plate, when you sort of see like conceptually the concepts that they were running, it's more like air raid on steroids, I'd say. I'd say that there's a lot of stuff that he was doing that would translate quickly to a sort of West Coast style offense. There was that piece that Doug Farrar did that just came out this week where he sat down and watched tape of Mahomes and went through some of their play calls. There were a lot of concepts that he was running that are going to be stuff that he'll see in the NFL. And to take this into a little bit of a different direction, Ted Wynn, who I worked with at ITP, he and I did the quarterback stuff for our draft guide. He studied that Texas Tech offense, and he basically came to me and said, look, Mark, I really think that he's going to have an easier playbook when he gets to the NFL. Because Clinsbury put so much on his plate in terms of how they adjusted the concepts on the fly, the fact that he was basically given the play call at the line of scrimmage, and it was on him to basically get everybody into formation, give everybody their play call, their assignment, and all that stuff at the line of scrimmage, free reign to make audibles at the line of scrimmage to get them in and out of plays. So I think that it's not just a simple air raid type guy that we expect that just comes in and like slings the ball all over the place, like Klingler, like Ware. I think Mahomes has more sort of cerebral type experience in that offense with a lot that was put on his plate that has him ready to sort of step into an NFL huddle, take charge, and execute their offense in that game plan. Now, can you agree with me, though? One of the things that I don't like about this prospect, again, I've, I've watched some of his tape, but again, I don't trust my own eyes anymore because I've just been burned too many times. Like I, I, told, so I told our listeners before, I thought Ryan Mallett was going to revive the Bills franchise if we drafted him. 
And clearly that isn't the case. He's not that type of quarterback. When I look at Mahomes, what I see is a guy who, A, doesn't have pro-style experience, pro-offensive style experience. So you would have to ease him in, even, even if he redshirted for a year. Let's say he were to sit and ride pine on the bench behind an established starter and come in. He's still looking at having to learn the mechanics of taking snaps, you know, a three-step, five-step, seven-step drop, and going through his progressions at the same time while still maintaining pocket awareness. That is something that I, I just don't think guys who come from these types of offenses can really do well at the NFL level. I feel like they fall prey to a lot of heavy pressure systems. When you're, when you're primarily taking snaps out of a shotgun, you don't see an A-gap blitz. You know what I mean? What will you do? But you you see it from way behind the line of scrimmage. You're not at the third step of your drop and all of a sudden there's pressure in your face and you're forced to make a good decision. And that being said, I hold that against Mahomes because I watch the decision he makes, decisions he makes under pressure. He rolls out. And then I, one of the things I hate about his tape is watching him make big plays by throwing the ball back across his body to the other side of the field. You know that that's how most interceptions at the NFL level, when they happen on the boundary, you're asking to get picked off if you do that. So watching that, I I just I don't know how people can get behind him as an NFL prospect. Yeah. And, you know, there are a couple of you know things that I kind of highlight here sort of in response to that. And I think that. You know, at the outset, we're seeing a lot more of a blurred line between what NFL teams are doing on Sundays schematically from an offensive standpoint and what collegiate teams are doing, even air raid systems or spread teams like Clemson. I mean, a prime example of that is how we've seen sort of Marcus Mariota, their offense that he ran at Oregon. It was termed to be sort of like the spread style offense that, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't going to be able to translate well. He doesn't make window throws. He doesn't make anticipation throws. But there were some semblances of him doing that in Oregon, but people still had reservations about it. He comes to Tennessee, and there's sort of a meld of what Tennessee was doing, sort of in a pro-style setting, but they're bringing in some of those concepts. So we're seeing a lot more teams run primarily you know, with their quarterback in the shotgun. I mean, look at New England, for example. They're in the gun a ton. Well, they I do mean, that to reduce – I think I think the, ring, the reason New England does that is because they recognize that Brady's Achilles heel really is a gap pressure. Yeah. You get, no, and, and so, so they do it out of the shotgun to minimize the risk of him having guys in his face off the snap. Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely something to be said for that. But, you know, I, I think what we're starting to see is a reckoning – you know, teams are realizing that – Given the fact that these guys are coming from spread system, from air raid system, this is what we're going to have to translate to anyway. And football offensively always kind of works in cycles. And we're seeing teams at the NFL level start to incorporate more and more of that style of play. And in terms of, you know, the mechanics and the drop back and all that stuff, like that's something that, yeah, he'll have to learn if he needs to. Because you don't have to put the guy in our center if you don't. You know, necessarily, you don't necessarily have to do that. You can have it part of the playbook, but you don't need to rely on that type of you know style of play. Look, for example, Peyton Manning. You know, he wanted to be either in the pistol or in the shotgun because you get a better view of the field. You get a better sense of where the defense is, where the secondary is, where guys on the boundary are, and so you know they can structure for Mahomes an offense that's similar in that aspect to allow him to be more comfortable. So the, the mechanical transition to playing under center, playing the pros, I'm not as worried about it. I am, in a sense, more worried about the sort of mental stuff that comes with, you know, working in a system that's different from the one you've been in. But that brings us back to what I was saying earlier about Mahomes and 
you know, the stuff that was put on his plate by Clinsbury, by Texas Tech, I think he's set up to do stuff like that. So final so verdict, I, you see him as an NFL starter at some point in his career. I do. I, I really oh. do. I, I think, you know, from the tools standpoint, he definitely has the raw tools. From the mental standpoint, I think he's farther ahead than people really give him credit for. And I think, you know, the final thing with him is, you know, he's very sort of scheme diverse in what he can bring to an offense, whether it's West Coast, whether it's Coriel, whether it's Ernst Perkins. I think he can make those throws to all levels and he can function in all those kinds of offenses. Is there stuff he has to sort out? Yeah, definitely. None of the guys in this class are perfect or close to it right now but i think mahomes has enough both between the ears and in terms of an athletic skill set that he can translate to the nfl whether it's you know one year three years four years down the road we'll see but i think he can do it who is the best fit for mahomes i i think arizona you know, I, I think you watch how Arizona likes to attack teams in the passing game. You look at the way they like to push the ball vertically down the field. They like to, you know, work in those window throws, those 20 to 25 yard dig routes. He has the arm talent that is, I think, superior to the guys in this class. I think he throws the ball well downfield, velocity to all levels, accuracy to basically all levels from any platform. And so I think in a system like that, that would be the best fit for him. So now moving on, the next guy on my list here. Mitchell Trubisky from out of North Carolina. I have him tabbed as my biggest boomer bust award candidate. I look at every every time there's a draft where people talk about quarterbacks, I look at who is going to be either a home run or if he fails, he's going to fail and it's going to be ugly. And this year it's Mitchell Trubisky. Now, people in the media, and I don't understand this, but they talk about him as the safest option of all the quarterbacks in this year's draft. But I have a hard time buying that. I mean, to me, he seems like the one with the smallest resume, smallest body of work. You know, he doesn't have a whole lot of film to draw from. And that in and of itself gives me him a much bigger potential to underperform his draft position. Yeah. I, I mean, scouts just haven't had time to find his flaws yet. I mean, here's a list of quarterbacks drafted highly between 1997 and 2007 that all started fewer than 30 collegiate games before being drafted. Ryan Leaf, Tim Couch, Achilles Smith, Michael Vick, David Carr, Joey Harrington, and Alex Smith. (laughs) Since then, we've seen other busts. I mean, you've got Johnny, Johnny Manziel, Brandon Whedon. Both of those guys fall under the under 30 game, you know, under 30 games of collegiate experience mold. Sanchez. And all of these guys were first rounders, or I, I want to say they were all first round picks. They were all drafted highly by quarterback needy teams who were willing to overlook their flaws simply because they saw some good things on tape and thought it was enough to work with. And ultimately, I feel like every single one of those picks blew up in the team's faces. Alex Smith might be the outlier. Michael Vick, you could argue Michael Vick had a good career, but did he win a Super Bowl? No. And I mean, and you're right. The 30 game, I, I, I know Chris kind of went, rolled his eyes at me a second ago. EJ Manuel and Geno Smith both proved that you can still fail even with significant collegiate experience. But I feel like the track record for guys who don't have a at least a couple years of collegiate starting experience who get drafted highly, it doesn't end well. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. And, you know, Trubisky out of the sort of the big four is the guy that I'm the lowest on. And, you know, one of the things that I really point to, there's two sort of areas of concern that I have with him. And one probably stems from the sort of inexperienced aspect to his tape. He's got 13 games to him. 
is a, a decision-making process. There are times when I just don't really understand sort of what he's doing, what he's thinking, where he's going with the football, and why he's doing what he's doing. You know, and you know, for example, I'll, I'll just take one example. One play against Virginia where he's got trips to his left. It's sort of a simple stick concept where the inside receiver is going to go to five yards and either sit down versus zone or run versus man. Outside receiver is just going vertical, and the middle guy is going to run an out route or a curl route, depending on what he sees. Virginia's got their 4-2-5 nickel. They've got their slot cornerback. He's over the middle trips guy, so the inside guy is uncovered. So Trubisky sees that pre-snap and thinks, oh, I'm going to have an easy throw. He's going to sit down, a little five-yard curl. We're going to move on to the next play. At the snap, that slot corner jumps from two to three, and Trubisky just freezes. It just, it just has, like, brain lock. Meanwhile, he's got that middle trips guy who's just sitting there wide open with the safety who's coming from a too-high look, rotating it over, not within 10 yards of him. Trubisky freezes, tries to tuck it, runs, and gets sacked. And that's, Ooh. guys, that's like a high school read. And this wasn't like his first start. Like that Georgia tape was, you know, that was his first game. If I had watched that game first, I would have said this guy's not draftable. Well, so, I'll, well, I'll be I, honest I have you. I have no idea what you just said. Okay. <laughs> that's why I just produced That's why I just produced Chris it. thinks it's hysterical because I'm, I am I pick up on everything you're saying, and Chris is just standing here dumbfounded. He's trying to – it's like he's trying to learn by jumping on a moving train. Yeah. So – but but I'll – no, no. I completely agree with you on that point as far as his decision-making. And I also – what scares me is his almost seeming – you, you watch great quarterbacks. Great quarterbacks will get fooled on a play. They'll see a defensive look every now and again. I mean, Tom Brady's done it. You're a Patriots fan. Yep. What about the one game that we beat Tom Brady? In the first half, we showed him the most vanilla defense, and he shredded us for 21 straight points. And then we got three consecutive interceptions. Pick, pick, pick. And they all turned into points, and all of a sudden it was a ball game. Well, what I remember from that game was that, though, every time they weren't the same interception. You know, every time we'd get a pick off Brady, our defensive coordinator would go back to the sideline knowing, okay, we're going to celebrate with my players, but now I know that he's seen, I showed my hand. And now I've got to come up with a new play, some new way to fool him. Because if I don't, he's going to pick me apart. The thing about Trubisky that bothered me the most was in that bowl game against Stanford. I saw him commit what is a cardinal sin. <laughs> That's not. There's no pun intended there, the Stanford Cardinals. He didn't. Okay, so he's going against a cover three defense. You know, that, that means there's two deep safeties, and then there's one guy playing robber kind of in the middle of the field. He throws an interception to that robber safety. You know, it's, it's, he thinks that his wide receiver's coming into that window, and the safety already anticipates it, and he jumps the route and catches the ball. A quarter later, they give him the same exact defensive look, and he throws the same pick, same location, same wide receiver target, same defender, and the defender runs it back for a touchdown yeah. in what ends up being a one-score game at yeah. the end. And, and that look that you're talking about, I mean, that's just a simple sort of like rolled coverage type look that, yep. you know, you see that on Saturdays, you see it on Friday nights. Like that's not like a complex sort of combination coverage. That was the, and that's a great, that that's a the, great point you made, Drew, because, you know, a guy that we're going to get to Watson, you know, he's more similar to Brady, I think in the sense that defenses had to show him different looks to bait him into mistakes. And did he make him? Sure. But even the times when he got fooled and threw a bad pick, he saw the same look sometimes later the season, sometimes later that game, and he learned from it. With Trubitsky, he's making the same mistake again and again and again, and that's an area for concern. If you can't learn from it, if you can't learn from your mistakes as a quarterback, 
you're going to be in for a world of hurt. I mean, that was my very first game ever watching Trubisky play. And so maybe that jaded my decision-making a little bit when I, when I view him in negative light. But I went back and looked at his tape, and I mean, I see some good things. I mean, I, yeah. I look at the fact that he seems like he's got solid mechanics. His pocket presence, he doesn't seem like he panics. And I think his short and intermediate accuracy are pretty good. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you know, there's some stuff to like with him. I think, you know, in terms of like pocket toughness, like he's one of the tougher guys in this class. I think he'll stay and he'll fight in the pocket. He's not going to bail out of the pocket unnecessarily. I mean, every guy does from time to time, but he certainly stays there and fights as much as he can. Accuracy in the short intermediate area is pretty good. He's generally okay down the field, although there's some inconsistencies at times. Mm-hmm. You know, there is one mechanical issue that kind of creeps up. Sometimes he'll tend to like step in the bucket with his left foot. And that can lead to some throws being off the mark, whether it throws to the side line or crossing routes but you know i mean i think there's some stuff to like it's just i just i'm higher on the other three guys in this top four group and you know trubitsky's kind of like lagging behind and it's the decision making for me as well as sort of that mechanical accuracy issue now i gotta ask you i saw chris roll his eyes over here can you please explain for chris now, what i know what by step, step in the bucket i played baseball in high school i know <laughs> what that i know what that means there you go See, I, I know that term very well because that's what I did. That's why when I was when I was in high school, my last year playing baseball, I was a shortstop. They would use the DH for me and not the pitcher because I couldn't hit a lick. It was awful. <laughs> so now you just mentioned his name, Deshaun Watson. Okay, now I, he play, coming out of Clemson, he's a guy that everyone's kind of. I don't know why, but we've been we haven't we met, met with him at the combine. Okay, we have not worked him out. We have not had him here for a pre-draft visit, and yet the reports will not stop flowing that Doug Whaley is in love with this guy. Now, I will say that I think he's a little bit underrated. I mean, he's a national championship winning quarterback, right? You don't do that unless you're a good quarterback. Or do you? <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, some straight, like Tim Tebow won a national championship. Exactly. So, I mean, so, so, yeah. So, I guess my question is, what is your take on Deshaun Watson's upside? Why is everyone so – why is everyone – like we took our poll this week and Deshaun Watson was the highest voted voted on quarterback candidate for the Buffalo Bills. Why are people in love with Watson? What is his upside? Look, I mean, I, full disclosure, I mean, I've been on sort of Watson Hill for a long time and have not moved off on him. I mean, he's my top quarterback. I, I just think the world of his potential here. And part of the reason is, you know, there's a, a number of things that I can point to. I mean, one, you know, these numbers that keep coming back to me, 63.7% completion rate for 1,615 yards, 16 touchdowns, two picks. Those are his fourth quarter numbers in his career at Clemson. I mean, that's money time. That's when, you know, when I'm watching quarterbacks, I look to third downs, I look to red zone stuff, and I look at the fourth quarter and what they do. And those fourth quarter numbers, I mean, they really stand out in this class. I mean, I think, you know, Mahomes through like, I think, I got him right here. But, you know, I looked at the other two guys in this class and, you know, for example, Trubitsky, you know, he completed 67.2% of his passes in the fourth quarter, 13 touchdowns, five picks. Mahomes, 61% of his passes in the fourth quarter, 16 touchdowns, eight picks. And Kaiser, 57% in the fourth quarter, 10 touchdowns, two interceptions. So Watson's numbers really sort of stand out there. And so I think, you know, when you got a guy that can do that in the fourth quarter, that includes two national championship games against Alabama. When you got a guy who I think doesn't get enough credit for how cerebral he is, how he could rule plays in and out pre-snap, how he understands leverage and what a defense is doing in the secondary, 
And when you add in the competitive toughness factor, which is hard to overlook, I know it kind of gets mocked a little bit on the timeline when people think like, oh, competitive toughness, how do you really judge that? Watch him get holocopted by Ruben Foster in the national championship game, bounce right back up and say, all right, you just gave me your best shot. We're still going to win this game. He put a like, – I'm a Bama fan. I am yeah. a known Alabama fan. And when that hit happened, I was shocked. I was holding my breath. I didn't even really celebrate because I was waiting for the roughing the passer flag. And when yeah. it didn't come, I was shocked. Yeah. And if you're a defensive player on Clemson, if you're a, like the backup holder, if you're a coach, you see your quarterback put his body on the line like that and get up and take the – best shot he could from their best defender. You want to play for that guy. You want to win for that guy. You want to do everything you can for that guy. And so when you put that package together, like like I said, like, I, I tweeted at the end of that game, like he's got his flaws, I know, but that's my guy. Like give me that guy and I'll win games. Well, what, what would you say his biggest flaw is? I mean, look, people point to the 17 interceptions and they say, look, he turns the ball over a ton. Well, I went through all 17 of those picks. There's a video. You can find it on our YouTube page, Inside the Pylon. I mean, YouTube.com slash Inside the Pylon. I went through them one by one. Like His biggest flaw, I think, is he loses sight of defenders on the boundary. Like there were times when he – there were two bad picks he had against NC State and against Florida State where they showed him a fake cornerback blitz. The cornerback showed blitz, dropped off, and he threw it right to the guy because he thought he was going to have an easy sort of side adjustment for an easy completion. So he could get confused and baited into some mistakes. There are times when he just assumes that the post-snap look will match up what he gets pre-snap. Like one interception he threw against Troy, he thought he was going to get cover two across the board, and he never looked backside, and they rolled it to a cover two to one side and cover four to the other side, so it's cover six. He thought he would have an easy throw on an out route, but that cornerback backside was just sitting there waiting for the ball. Well, see, and so that, those are the things that he's going to have to fix. But, but see, that I makes me concerned because I'm t- you're talking about changing looks. The best teams in the NFL have these defenses that are constantly morphing, are constantly changing. Yeah. Pre-snap looks in, and shifts are everything now in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, that's and the, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, this is kind of ways back to an earlier point about Trubitsky. That interception he threw against Florida State on that sort of, you know, fake cornerback blitz from the weak side, that was the second of three times he saw that in that game. The first time he saw that look, the corner came, he threw the side adjustment first down. Second time he sees that look, the corner backs off, he thinks he's going to have the side adjustment, throws it to the corner, it gets picked. Third time he sees that look, the corner backs off again. He sees it, comes off that, looks at an out route, doesn't like that look because he sees that receiver's double teamed, comes to his third read, a post route down the middle of the field for a big play, gets him into a first and goal situation in a one-score game. So what that shows me is you can get him once. You can get him to make a mistake, but he's not going to make the same mistake twice. Ah, I see what you did there. Yeah. All right. All right, I like it. Set that one up, huh? <laughs> you set that one up nicely. Yeah. So, That's so, the old lawyer in me coming up. <laughs> so, so I'm going to skip out here for a minute. Now, now we're going to move on to another candidate, Deshaun Kaiser. Okay. Now, I'll be honest. At first, from his first year, last year, I kind of had Deshaun Watson and Deshaun Kaiser on the same page. But coming into this year, I feel like Deshaun Kaiser has become one of the most polarizing prospects of the entire year because – I've heard conflicting reports from everything I read. There's some scouts and some people, and I'm not just talking about you know amateur scouts. I'm talking some pro scouting outlets that 
look and they state emphatically that he, this guy could be the best quarterback in this draft. And he's absolutely a franchise quarterback. And then I turn around and I go to NFL.com. And according to Lance Zerline, his his accuracy issues and his inability to progress through his reads, he shouldn't he's a second day at best prospect. Blah, prospect. So I guess my question is that that's a big gap. Where do you think he falls in between there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've really sort of this draft season kind of hemmed and hawed on who was QB2 between Mahomes and Kaiser. And, you know, the closer we get to the draft, and the more I've kind of looked at those two guys and really dove into them again and again and again. I've kind of given Mahomes the nod over Kaiser. You know, I really wanted to kind of look to Kaiser and think, OK, this is a guy that you know, could be, you know, a potential franchise type guy. I mean, I actually did a, an early QB only mock a couple of weeks, like a month or two ago and had him my first quarterback off the board because I thought there was that kind of potential with him. But I think there are some issues there that give people pause right now. You know, one of them is sort of a accuracy slash mechanical one. He, similar to Trubisky, has a sort of a lower body issue where he opens his left hip early. Sometimes that leads to a drop in velocity and some inaccuracy issues. So that's well, so so wait, 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 stop right there. If he has accuracy issues, yeah. then why wouldn't you? Into the room. Uh, I mean, if he has accuracy issues, that could plague his whole career. I mean, there's there's no yeah, and there's, the, there's the no promise that, that you can fix that. Yeah, well, I mean, the issue there is that it doesn't always happen. It's not like a consistent flaw. It only happens okay. from time to time. So it's it's similar to some of the other guys in this class, like Trubitsky and stepping in the bucket where, you know, it's going to have to get refined over time. But coaching staff, whether it's Brian Kelly, whether it's the guys down at UNC and Fedora, like they just need to be able to get by with these guys and win games with them as they are. Their job isn't to, like, get them pro ready. It's just to win games with them the way they're constructed right now. So with Kaiser, I think that, you know, that left hip issue, that mechanical issue is, again, something he can work out provided he gets, you know, the right reps and number of reps in practice and in game type situations to do it. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the, how I view that. So and then he's again, very you know, much a the, prospect that's going to take some grooming. He's going to take yeah, some I mean, time to really you know, become NFL. Well, I was going to say, is his accuracy just a product of him? Going to uh, Notre Dame because I believe Rick Meyer like couldn't throw to his left. <laughs> yeah, it could be. And you know, full disclosure, I mean, that was my first draft class as a Pats fan where I really, really paid attention. And I was a kid in high school banging the table for Rick Meyer over Drew Bledsoe. So I mean, maybe you should just take my opinion and just throw him out the window. I mean, let's be honest. Here comes Chris with the Rick Meyer reference. That's, I like Christ. where you pulled that from. I actually, I still have it somewhere—a Rick Meyer Seahawks jersey somewhere. Oh, I'll have to wow. take that out. So ultimately, you think the Kaiser's issues are not as not as severe as I I think they are. Well, I mean, there's still sort of like a decision-making issue, which is an area I have a lot of concern with them with. And this might get us to the Brian Kelly relationship, but there are a number of times, whether it was 2016, 2015 even, even, you know, some people like Josh Norris, for example, considers his 2015 tape maybe the best QB tape out of anybody in this class. But even then, there are situations where he had guys open, like in the middle of the field for potential big plays. And whether he didn't trust his eyes or he was afraid about making a mistake, he pulled the ball down and wouldn't throw it. 
And so th- that leaves me wondering why. Like, was he not trusting what he was seeing? Was he afraid about missing a coverage? Or was he just afraid about making a mistake and having Brian Kelly yell at him? And quarterback's one of those positions where you can't really play it scared. You can't play it afraid. No. Because if you if you do that, you're not going to challenge throwing windows. You're not going to make big plays downfield. I mean, ask, you know, Alex Smith, like, about <sighs> being afraid to challenge windows and mm-hmm. see where that gets you. Oh, and so that's kind of my, my biggest reservation, I think, on Kaiser. And that's something, you know, sitting here tonight, you know, shooting the breeze, having some drinks and talking about this stuff. We can't answer that right now. That's going to be up to Kaiser and his coaches in the NFL, whether they can, you know, figure out what the demons were inside and get them out of his head. I mean, essentially, so what you're saying is you view him kind of the way I view him. He's He's got some physical talent, but he's got enough issues that he is not a guy that you can just draft and roll out there. Yeah. Within a year. I feel like he's going to need more than at least one year of work. Yeah, I mean, it's really going to depend on the landing spot and, you know, the sort of structure that they're going to have around him from a coaching standpoint. I mean, when I did that first mock of him going to, you know, San Francisco, I, number two, I mean, that that's kind of how I viewed him at the time. It kind of made sense from a schematic standpoint with him and Kyle Shanahan running similar type offenses the past two seasons, whether it's Atlanta's or Notre Dame's. There's some schematic familiarity and similarity there. But I think the more and more I think about this and look at that potential relationship, you know, he's going to need a coach that's going to be the, basically the anti-Brian Kelly, and I'm not sure Kyle Shanahan's that kind of, kind of guy. Well, that brings us to our fourth quarterback candidate who's been linked to the Buffalo Bills. Nathan Peterman is not a name that you really hear a lot of press about, but he's one of the quarter, only quarterbacks that the Bills have met with twice now. Okay, And everything I read tells me he is the dark horse to be an impact quarterback coming out of this class. I mean, So I started digging into who Nathan Peterman was and what he was all about, because the only thing I remember was the night that he and Pitt went on the road to beat Clemson. I mean, that was incredible. That was that was a football game. There. I mean, that was unbelievable. And how their kicker missed that one kick and his coach just kind of joked around with him on the sideline. And then he came out and nailed that game winner. It was unbelievable. So I guess the thing that surprises me is that after you watch some of his tape, his name hasn't been thrown around by the media at all. But every one of his scouting reports glows about him. I've, yeah. heard, I've, I've read comparisons to Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, even some willing to kind of kind of paint him in the same light as, hey, some team that drafts him in a later round could be finding this year's Dak Prescott. Oh, boy. I know. But those are by some well-respected members of both the amateur and pro scouting community, which is surprising considering that there's no mainstream media buzz about him. Now, is this just GMs being savvy and kind of trying to suppress, you know, hey, we're going to keep our how much we like this kid under wraps so that maybe he's still there in that late second, early third round? Or is he just very much not a pro style candidate? No, I mean, I think, you know, it's more probably the former than the latter. And I think part of what's at work here, Drew, is that, you know, Leading up to the Senior Bowl, people were really excited to see Nathan Peterman up close, you know, because we get to see him in sort of Matt Canada's, mm-hmm. you know, Pittsburgh offense. And Canada has a relationship as a, you know, reputation as a very complex offensive play caller, lots of movement, lots of shift and lots of adjustments. So it's a pretty complex offense. So people kind of assume that, look, you know, Peterman's run that offense. He's going to, you know, just blow people's minds when he gets down to Mobile and really impress all the scouts, all the evaluators or the coaches down there. 
and when you get down there to see him, did he have a great week? Yeah, I think so. I think he was the best quarterback down there and probably made the throw of the week of practice. I think it was on you know Wednesday morning on in that morning practice session where he just drilled an out route from the right hash to the left sideline. It was kind of like a put the pen down moment. I literally did. I was like, okay, like, yeah, he's the best quarterback down here, I think. But that's really all the buzz that he got. And I think part of that was people then left Mobile. They go back to do work on him. They realize that, yeah, Canada has a really complex offensive structure. But when you look at what he was asked to do within that offense, there were a lot of designed rollouts, bootlegs, half field reads. So while the offense was complex, what he was asked to do wasn't overly complex. And so there's going to be definitely a transition into what he's going to be asked to do when he gets to the NFL. Now, I think the comparison to Kirk Cousins makes sense for one reason, and that's that type of offense with what Washington's doing right now would make a ton of sense for him because what Gruden has for Cousins is a lot of half-field reads, a lot of, you know, if it's cover one with a, you know, cover three with a safety in the middle of the field, you're going to the left. If it's cover two with the middle of the field open, you're going to the right. They've kind of simplified the read structure for him. And I think that sort of offensive, you know, play style would make sense for Peterman. So, you know, I think what happened was there was buzz about him around the senior bowl. We saw him. He kind of checked the boxes and then people were like, OK, let's go back, do some more work. And then he's kind of slid back into that, you know, next tier of four quarterbacks, I'd say. Well, here's one of the things I have the biggest problem with when I look at Peterman, and when I look at how he's being regarded by the scouting community. People talk about him, his arm strength. They say he's like Kirk Cousins, but they doubt his arm strength. He doesn't have the strong arm to throw the deep ball. Which makes me think of a guy like Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yet, at, according to NFL.com, he completed over 46% of all of his deep pass attempts last season. And I was looking at Pro Football Focus. They paint the kid as averaging 9.6 yards per passing attempt, which is seventh in all of college football. So I don't know how I can get this storyline that he has inadequate arm strength if. In reality, he set some pretty solid metrics for having a strong arm. I yeah, mean, is yeah that, I, I think the is knock that? on his arm strength is one that kind of confuses me because I think, you know, arm strength is one of those issues where there's sort of like just a minimum threshold that you've got to hit to be a successful NFL quarterback and to be able to make the throws that are be asked of you. And I think Peterman hits that, and I don't really have any reservations about him from an arm strength standpoint. And again, when you're looking at how he's going to translate to an offense, like maybe if you have reservations about his ability to throw the deep ball, you won't peg him into sort of a Coriel-type system where, like Arizona, you're throwing the ball deep. But if you're a West Coast team or a team that's shift into a West Coast type of play structure, like, for example, the um, <coughs> Buffalo Bills, <laughs> he could fit that type of offense. And so I, I think that might be part of the reason you're hearing sort of this potential, you know, Nate Peterman going to Buffalo kind of talk is because, you know, he could fit that play structure. He could work in that type of offense, and he, I think he could run it fairly quickly. So that brings us to our last candidate here. Now, Nostalgia. Oh, this here we is, go. He's only linked to the team through would seem Uncle to be on paper. Jimmy. Chad Kelly out of Ole Miss. Yep. Now, is it nepotism that he's being viewed as an NFL prospect, or is it legitimate talent? I, I think mean, it's legitimate talent. I, I mean, I've watched a lot. I, I watch it as a Bama guy. I watch a ton yep. of SEC football, a ton of it. And I've Chad Kelly beat us. Chad Kelly is one of the few quarterbacks who can say he beat Alabama. Yep. Chad Kelly has 
kept teams. I mean, he's got. I think the knock on him is that his Ole Miss teams got out to big leads early and then couldn't maintain those leads throughout the course of a game. And I think those are when he needs his defense to clamp down and he needs his running game to take over and they don't do it. And he can't he can't personally, you know, if he goes up 21 to 3, you can't ask him to hang another 21 points on a defense who's already seen his best shot. Yeah. I I guess I got to ask someone who studies this type of stuff. Is he a legitimate NFL talent and should he be taken seriously as a prospect? I think yes and yes to both of those. And, you know, I, I think that with Kelly, the on the field between the line stuff is up there with some of the other guys in this class. Like if you like Patrick Mahomes, like you're going to like Chad Kelly because there's similar types of players. I mean, you know, Kelly has that gunslinger mentality. There's not a single throw in window that he's afraid to challenge. And he has the arm strength to make all of those throws, whether it's in the intermediate range, whether it's deep down the middle of the field in the vertical passing game. And he's a pretty accurate thrower who can make throws off of any platform. I mean, he's very much like Mahomes in that regard. And so I think the concern with Kelly comes from a number of red flags on off-the-field situations. Obviously, the knee injuries are something to consider. And he got booted from Clemson after a fight with a coach during the spring game. Like, he had the incident at a bar in Buffalo where he said he was going to go in and get an AK and shoot everybody. I mean, <laughs> there is an issue where he ran onto the field of his brother's high school game. And started a fight during a situation in that game. Hey, so, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you play football, though? I did. Okay. So I guess you understand what goes on in that field. And if you saw someone doing that to a brother of yours, it would probably – would you be – I guess because you're probably a more mature individual, you might have the self-restraint to uh, not rush the field, Right. Well, you're, you're talking to somebody that did get into a little bit of a scrape-like situation with his brother at a bar in Boston. And so I'd have to say, yeah, I'd probably be right there too. So, yeah. I mean, guilty as charged. I mean, I you know, that's the one that I, I'm not as concerned. But again, I'm just a dude here on Tuesday night chilling <laughs> with you guys. I'm not going to get fired if I draft exactly. Chad Kelly in the third round. Exactly. So, and, so uh, my butt's not on the line. But I mean, so I, I, I get the reservations. And obviously, he just got injured again at his pro day, hurt his wrist, couldn't complete throw. And he's going to have to throw again at a later date. Mm-hmm. So there are medical red flags. There are off the field red flags. But, you know, something I always come back to with Kelly is, you know, doing some of the work I was doing last summer to get ready to cover the SEC. I was going through some coaching clinic notes. And, you know, I, I get those things every year. And I was going through one, a presentation that Hugh Freeze had done on Mississippi's sort of up-tempo offense. And he talked about how Chad Kelly's a baller, how he's just a great football player, but he has severe ADD to the point where he has to take like serious medication for it. And they had to like really tailor the verbiage and how they call their plays so he could just like wrap his mind around it. And so while that doesn't like excuse the off field of stuff, it just gives it a little bit of context where, you know, you know, there's sort of a medical issue there that he's got to kind of work through. And so when you, see that when you learn that you kind of understand it a little bit more and again it doesn't excuse his actions off the field but you get some context to it and so i think with kelly given what he can do on the field if he can stay healthy and if he's got a support system around him like say his uncle then he'd be a perfect fit in Buffalo. well and that's and that was going to be my final question for you here so as far as final rankings and impact for buffalo so now we've talked through every single one of these prospects i guess i gotta ask which of these guys, if you had to rank the top three that you think could benefit the Buffalo Bills in this draft, since that's been en vogue for the last three weeks, 
All anyone can talk about well, is... Well, not the, three weeks. Try 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I'm talking... The, the, it, was all about, it was all about a linebacker. It was all about secondary. It was all about the... And all of a sudden, this quarterback talk started ramping up out of nowhere. And now here we are a week from the draft. And it's still being thrown around. And it's gaining steam that the Bills are going to take a quarterback early. So if they were going to do it, let's say in the top two rounds, if they were going to take one of these quarterbacks... Can you give me your own personal ranking on where you think each one of these guys would slot in, given our West Coast offense, given that we've got a new head coach with an experienced offensive coordinator and a decent support staff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're looking just kind of like the first, like we'll say like days one or two and sort of the first three rounds of this draft, I think I would go Watson one. You know, I mean, I think if he's there at 10, you guys got to give serious consideration to taking him because for all the reasons I said, look, I think this guy could be, you know, a franchise type quarterback. And I think he could play pretty early in the NFL and have success. And I think he's a fairly, you know, you mentioned that Trubisky might be viewed as the safest guy in this class. I I really think it's Watson. I, I really think out of the guys in this class, Watson is the safest. So I'd go Watson. I think after that, I'd consider probably Mahomes next. I know, Drew, that you're probably going to start shaking your head violently and <laughs> consider about you know throwing that bucket across the room or something. I'm going to chew you know, on the I, neck I of my think, beer bottle. Yeah. I, I, I do, though. I do think that you know Mahomes has the ability to run sort of a West Coast-style offense. He can handle it from you know the mental standpoint. And again, from Buffalo's perspective, they wouldn't have to play him early. I mean, you could have Tyrod Taylor as a bridge to a Patrick Mahomes a season or two down the road. So you could do that. And so that would make sense. Again, you know, maybe a 10, you know, maybe if Mahomes falls, it's a trade back into the first round type of situation. You know, if you're thinking about doing a guy on day two, I think Peterman probably makes the most sense. I think he could run that offense and is a safer option and doesn't really have the red flags. But if they wait and if it gets to be day three, then it's Chad Kelly time, my friends. Then it's Chad Kelly time. Now, I'll be honest with you. Out of all these guys, if I was going to spend draft capital on a quarterback, I feel like next year's quarterback class is getting so much press as being better. And I've heard a lot of that, that, oh, next year was Sam Darnold and all these other guys. So how does this year's so far? I mean, I know there's no way to predict what's going to happen in next year's NCAA season. How does this quarterback class stack up against next seasons in, yeah, in yeah. your professional and, opinion? You know, I, I actually wrote a piece about this like a couple of weeks ago where we hear this every like exactly. April where it's like, oh, just wait, next year's class is going to be better. So what I did, Drew, I went back and looked at some of the early mock drafts that we see like every May right after the draft ends. Like, oh, this is going to be next year's early mock draft. And guys like Landry Jones, guys like Matt Barkley, guys like Tyler Wilson, Tyler Bray, they were being talked about like surefire, sure thing, top 10 NFL draft picks in the next draft class. And we know how that turned out. Yep. So, you know, my point is we don't know what's going to happen with Josh Rosen and his shoulder. We don't know if Josh Allen is going to be able to build upon the fact that he can throw a heck of a fastball but can't throw a change up to save his life. We don't know if Sam Darnold's even going to come out. And so in Luke Falk, for example, yeah, he looks good, but he's another air raid type guy. So, you know, I'm always of the mind that the grass isn't always greener. Like, don't wait. We don't know what's going to happen with those guys. One of them could get hit by a bus for all we know. And so <laughs> if you've got a quarterback in need and a guy like Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes or later in the draft like a Nathan Peterman or somebody else has stared you in the face, don't bank on these guys being there next year. Take the guy that's in front of you. Look at New England. They've had Tom Brady for 
De- over a decade, almost 16, 17 years, they still take a quarterback every year or every other year because it's always better to be a year early than it is to be a year late to find your next guy. And and that's why you're here to talk us through all this. As the, patri- as the Residence Patriots, Resident Patriots fan, that's why you're here to talk to us about this. Man, that's what I'm here for, guys. Thank you so much for coming on to our show tonight. I appreciate it so much because I'll be honest, you're helping me and our fans out with something that I know nothing about. Where can we find you and what are you doing at Inside the Pylon and your Twitter handle? Sure. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Mark, M-A-R-K, Schofield, S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. Um, you can check out the work at IT Pylon, insidethepylon.com, or that main site's Twitter account is IT Pylon. Um, we'll be doing some you know, live draft coverage. Uh, we'll be rolling out you know, content throughout the draft and then into the offseason as well. So you know, definitely check us out. And if you're interested in the Inside the Pylon Draft Guide, you can check that out, itpdraftguide.com. Thank you so much to Mark Schofield for joining us tonight. Next Thursday, first round draft party in the <laughs> Fortress of Solitude. Next week, guys, we are going to be broadcasting live from my basement. That's right, the Fortress of Solitude. We're getting the draft party together. And this year, we've got some guests. We're going to have Bill's long snapper, Reed Ferguson, in the house with us. My friend, Doug Roloski. We're also going to have you know some, some of my other drunk friends hanging out in the basement who might jump on a microphone. We're also going to be featuring you know, other podcasters, Jets podcasters, both Joe Blewett and also uh, Kyle, um, Kyle Smith from the AFC East Pros podcast. Travis Wingfield. Travis Wingfield from now what is it? It's no longer Welcome to Perfectville. It's, he's now at thefins.com. Head writer. Guys, and we'll call my mother. <laughs> we're going to have takes from around the AFC. AFC East, we're going to have takes from my basement. We're going to have a lot of beer, and we're going to have a lot of football talk. And then, as if that wasn't enough, that's Thursday night. On Friday night, I'm actually going to be on the Huddle's TV draft show. Huddle TV is hosting a draft show at 34 Rush over at Batavia Downs Casino in gaming. It's going to be great. They have drink specials, food specials. I'm going to be wearing a suit. I'm going to look like probably a drunker version of Dom Draper. Chris will be hanging out probably either trolling for numbers in the crowd or, I don't know, Chris, just walking around with your stupid Kangol hat talking to old people. No, I won't be wearing this hat. My hair will be completely sexified. Oh, my God. Guys, why don't you come out to Batavia Downs on next Friday night when we're typing the show on the 28th and have a beer with us. If you're in the area, I, I advise you to come out. There's going to be prizes, autographed merchandise is going to be given away, hotel packages, and it's a free draft party with food and drink specials. I, I don't know what more you could ask for. Guys, we got to get the hell out of here. I've got a lot of beer to drink. This is Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was Mark Schofield, and this has been the Rock Pile Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.